I am Captain Matthew Gillespie of the Philadelphia Police Department's Southwest Detective Division, and this is Aftermath Philadelphia. In this podcast, I host critical conversations with those involved in reducing the epidemic of gun violence in the city of Philadelphia. This podcast features candid episodes that highlight the different thoughts and perspectives while offering strategies to lower the violence. In this episode, I have a special guest all the way from California. Marlon Mariachi is a 24-year veteran of the Los Angeles Police Department who retired at the rank of sergeant. He's also a Navy veteran. Currently, he's the CEO of Blue Consulting, a company that specializes in internal affairs training for police departments. We discuss his path from the U.S. Navy to the LAPD, including his time spent investigating straw purchases of firearms. We examine the core values of the LAPD, training and why it is so important, and how life experiences can make someone a better officer. We end with examining his role as an IEB investigator and how mediation in some complaints can be a positive outcome. Lastly, I invite him to a Philadelphia Eagles game as long as he doesn't wear his California hat. All the views and ideas on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas of the city of Philadelphia or any specific agency. All right, this is Aftermath Philadelphia. We're continuing season two, uh, Captain Gillespie, Matt Gillespie, and I am talking to someone from the farthest point uh, of the United States on the West Coast, Marlon Marachi, uh, 24, right-year veteran of the LAPD, 15-year um, veteran of being a supervisor, so like me, you probably had gray hair or lost your hair, right, supervising. Um, Absolutely. But Marlon, thank you so much. Extensive experience in the internal affairs section we're going to get into. But uh, number one, thank you for being here today, all the way from California. So thank you. Glad to be here, Matt. Thank you for uh, having me. I really appreciate it. So you know, like, what's cool about this podcast is it started internally. People here in Philadelphia, it's expanded uh, Chicago and other parts of the country. But I, I asked no matter where the guest is from, if they're involved in law enforcement, that, that question that we all get asked, how did you end up as a cop in the LAPD? Kind of what led you down that path? Well, let's, let's take a trip down memory lane. Yeah. Uh, my best friend, and this is so true, I have a daughter who's getting ready to go to college, and I tell her, you know what, your peer influence, what your, what your friends, the people you hang out with are pretty much going to kind of IG through your absolutely uh, through, through your life uh, through a pass. My best friend that I was hanging out with in Serpent for eighteen years old, seventeen, eighteen out of high school until 23, 24 years old. We just decided, hey, you know what? Uh, this is something that we uh, we got to do something. Something happens at twenty five. Okay. And so my best friend um, always had an interest in being a, a police officer, and so I joined the Navy at 24 and he shortly thereafter uh, about two years after that he decided to uh, join the LAPD and got himself in the academy now the stories he was sharing with me I got to tell you uh, it's something that I was interested in mm-hmm. I never really pictured myself carrying a gun I always thought that you know hey if I get myself in an OIS 
you know, uh, controversial. Do I live with something like that? It's just all these thoughts were happening. Sure. But you know what? As I saw him develop and I saw him grow uh, in the academy, I started realizing that, you know what? Uh, my curiosity turned into motivation and dedication. And so I've been wanting to reenlist. I owe a lot to my 24-year career to my best friend. And it's just something that um, I wanted to do. I wanted to come home and, uh, you know, get back to the community and see where we go. You know, it's something that um, I hear a lot, like, when we talk about how people got into policing, when we talk to the recruits or we talk to new officers. You know, I'm in the detective division now. You and I talked before. I was a captain of a patrol district. So, you know, you have anywhere from 150 police officers, and many of them are young. And I used to say to them, like, why did you join this job? Because why you joined does does determine how you are a policeman. And um, yeah, I used to say to them a lot, you know, the department didn't necessarily recruit you, right? You recruited the department because you wanted to join. So, you know, I say that in the fact that, like, there's a lot going on in policing. We all acknowledge it. And I'm a little off our subject. But we really have to get back to, I think, of you know, find out why we joined, why we joined and fight through some of the other struggles that we're having right now as a profession. And you know what? It's, um, for me, it's curiosity. As you know, um, everybody has their own little walks of path or their reasons or circumstances as to why they want to come on. Uh, For me, it was very, very curious. I just found it that, you know what, it's something that doesn't have an impact, right? You want to be Irrelevant as sure. you get older, and it's something that really, really, uh, um, I find it to be very valuable. And you know, affirmation and validity and all that good stuff. But I will tell you this, though, Matt, the my classmates that were 21, 22 years old because I came in, I was 29, almost 30 years old. Okay, and you know, I come from a broken family, you know, I've had a lot of um, controversy uh, in my personal life. Mm-hmm. You know what. All that experience made me a really, really good uh, street cop. More so, and, and nothing against the young ones, but, you know, when you're 21, 22 years old, you're still trying to kind of figure yourself out and yeah. talk about life experiences. You know, you can you can get it with scene to, you know, domestic violence or a radio call or whatever. And this it just escalates to where you have no idea and you're going to catch yourself, you know, being, uh, you know, it, it's going to be very, very challenging. I suppose that's the best way to describe it. I totally agree. I mean, there's all kinds of theories and thinkings and studies on age of when someone should join. But I I vividly remember being 21 or 22 in the district I started out on, going to domestic violence calls, never experiencing it in my personal life. You know, my parents didn't have that problem or issue. Having very little training on how to deal with it 20 years ago having very little life experience and now I'm like fixing or trying to fix a very serious domestic violence call not having life experience basically so I, I I totally agree I think some of the best officers that we have that transition into the profession are ones that have um some years under their belt oh, I'll say that now yeah, um you know, briefly, tell us about the LAPD. You know, why are they a great organization? Who are they? 
Um, you know, you see them on the movies, LAPD and the NYPD. And I get mad about that because Philly needs to be in more more stuff too. But go ahead, the LAPD. Who are you guys? Yeah, well, it, hey, you know, they, they say we're the best of the best. But I tell you what, Matt, there's not a day that goes by without improving, you know, or to getting better. Uh, one of the uh, six core values of the LAPD is quality for continuous improvement. And you know what? As you're like a street cop, you're like, nah, man, I just want to put bad guys away. And you really don't really think about all these core values, you know, uh, mentality, leadership, you know, quality of continuous improve, uh, improvement, just a whole bunch of stuff. That one always sticks out the most because if you really think about it, police work, as you know, evolve mm-hmm. and it's constantly changing and changing, you know, to the point where now it's... There's so much that you have to do before you even log on and, you know, and, and go out there on the streets. Yeah. LAPD is very, very good at keeping up with the, the best possible practices that you can have in okay. law enforcement. When I went to the academy, I realized that a lot of classmates are not from L.A. like me. A lot of them from the East Coast. Really? A lot of them from the Midwest. Oh, absolutely. I had classmates that were a couple from the East Coast. I had about two guys from Jersey, a couple of guys from Boston. Okay. um, Who, you know, back in my days, and I don't know what I can certainly tell you now, it's completely different. But back in 1997, 1998, when I was going through the process, Mm -hmm. LAPD was this big and the best of the best. In other words, if I'm going to go be a cop, because you're right, we watch on the show, we had life on the beat, you name it, yeah. I want to go to the best. It's kind of like, um, you know what? I want to go play for you know the Dodgers, nothing against the Phillies, the Dodgers or the Yankees, <laughs> you know? Sure. The cream of the crop, I want to go play for the Lakers, whatever, not now. But my point is, I want to make it to the NBA, I want to make it to the... Uh, the big leagues. You know, the big leagues. I want to make it to the big That's leagues. That's what we say here in Philly. What? Yeah, I want to make it to the big leagues. You know what? I don't want to spend no time playing double A. Might get to triple A, but I got to get to the big dance. And that's how LAPD at one point was viewed, was seen upon. Okay. And and and, and, and it's true because, you know, internationally, they come playing with the best. I mean, SWAT is, it, it, it is exactly what it's detailed and, you know, and signify to be, and people come here to train. That's probably the best that I can put it. For me, it was just easy because it was LAPD. Now, with that being said, I did apply for other agencies. Uh, but um, I think I had a, uh, a round-trip ticket to Vegas, and I was going to do like an expedited service okay. for Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. But the minute LAPD said, hey, you need to show up at City Hall and, you know, prove that you're eligible or, you know, come in and, and approve that you're eligible for the next academy class. And after that, I canceled everything. I'm like, you know what? I'm staying home. Okay. So for me, it's easy. For others, it, it's, it's a brand. It's, it's the big leap. And one of the things I do want to point out is like, you know, as a policing nerd, I guess, you know, I, I see that when agencies, certainly the LAPD, um, when there's things to improve, they are at the forefront of that. So I, I look, and this is just my opinion, like I look at agencies like Philly, New York, L.A., you know, even Chicago, Baltimore, I'm naming, I'm sure I'm forgetting a few that 
when they fall behind on something or there's some kind of um, issue, do you take the steps to fix it and become even better? And I think L.A. certainly is in that category. So uh, it's interesting to get your perspective. Now I'm going to jump ahead. Speaking of you know, improving and working, you have a law degree, is that correct? Yes, sir. I uh, just took the bar uh, last Wednesday, so let's hope and pray that uh, okay. I get my license and great, uh, great. we go forward. Congratulations. <laughs> now I'm going to ask you this. Thank I, you, Matt. I, I've had a few other guests on, and we talked about higher education. How has you know getting those degrees, getting an undergraduate degree, and being a police officer or in law enforcement, how has that helped you or affected you? It helps a lot. A lot of the candidates now, oh gosh, I want to say the last five years or so, maybe the last decade, a lot of the new newbies, right? Mm-hmm. The new police officers have wow. uh, have undergrads. Some even have masters, although it's not required. I, I want to say that there's a new Senate bill here in California where it's going to require mandated, but the bill in it itself is just coming out. We've been practicing, well, I shouldn't say that. We've been requiring not so much that we require just a candidate okay the pool of candidates have been very very uh formally educated and before i forget matt um i don't want to need to deviate and go back to the last question in terms of the LAPD. i just want to give an example of how uh, like you said about the improvement and how we pretty much evolutionize certain practices in police Mm -hmm. I'll just give you a quick example. So back in 2015, Body One Video came to light. Yes. And I want to say it was Rialto PD, which is way up north in California. Okay. Who had the first uh, 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 deployment of the Body One videos. At that time, I believe... I believe this, right? The California pretty much said everybody's going to get body worn video. Okay. To put it in the layman's terms, you know, hey, you're all going to get body worn video, but here's the deal. Grandfather into the Rialto policy and procedures for body worn, but you can also come up with your own. And so okay. I believe Oakland, California, Oakland Police Department had a draft of a particular body-worn video policy. Mm-hmm. You know what? A lot of the agencies put themselves on pause because they were waiting for the Los Angeles Police Department's body-worn policy to come into effect. So once it came into effect, you can you know you can adopt those particular sure. procedures into your own municipality and your agency. So. I just wanted to share that with you, and I found that very interesting because, you know, oftentimes, you know, we try to do the best, and, uh, you know, at times we are the best at what we do. Yeah, no, listen, that's a great example. The body-worn cameras are such an important tool. Um, I just got done watching tons of footage. I'm on the detective division now, so we use it every single day. So I want to go back, though. Um, I mentioned, you know, 24 24 years We'll get into your internal affairs experience, but just tell the audience, you know, some of the experience you've had other than the IAB experience or what your 24-year career um, was. And I always ask this question, did it go fast? Super fast. Okay. 
I spent nine, I got promoted at nine years as a sergeant. I took the test back in 2005, and for whatever reason, they froze it, and they didn't want to start promoting until, I'm sorry, it took it in 2004. They didn't publish the list, and then a year later, the list uh, kept going. So I made it between, on the promotional sergeant list from 2005 to 2007. And in January of 2007 is when I got promoted. Okay. Having said that, the best times and the fastest times I had has been when I was a police officer. I spent, you know, probation on patrol. Uh, then I went to another division and spent a lot of time on patrol. Luckily, with my uh, with my personality, my charm, I got selected to go work at a specialized unit okay. where we actually were what we call a chase car. We were a uniform car for an undercover a surveillance operation team. And what they did is they went out and just pretty much pegged with their experience uh, people that were stealing uh, retail clothes, going into storage and doing, you know, uh, mm. sometimes even strong arm to 11, so on and so forth. Wow. That was a lot of fun. So in other words, you know, the undercover, uh, the UCs are following, following when it's time to take them down. Here we come. The okay. uniforms. Hey, chase car, come in and do the takedown. That was a lot, a lot of fun. Gotcha. Great, great experience there. Then at some point in my nine-year career as a police officer, I happened to get chosen to work the uh, gun unit. Okay. Something that, you know, we can always, uh, you know, we can kind of elaborate a little bit more. Sure. But that gun unit really taught me a lot about the future. Um, in a sense that... I was never, you know, and, and I don't want to, you know, such an erratic phrase, but I wasn't a gun freak. Yeah, you know? no, I understand. There's people out there. Well, I shouldn't say people. There's cops, too. Yeah. We just love guns. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know this. Your firearms instructors have like, I don't know, 100 plus guns and they yeah. love it. It's like toys. They're just like cars. It's like Dave Leno. Dave Leno's got a garage full of cars, a garage full of, you know. Of guns, exactly, arms, exactly. Shotguns, you name it. <laughs> and so, what I didn't realize. So for me, I hey, I had my Glock. I had a uh, uh, a Glock uh, thirty three, which is a double barrel, ten plus one uh, that I use as an undercover when I used to do some undercover operations. And then, of course, I got my first generation E twenty one, the forty five, best gun ever. I transitioned from my ninety two Beretta. FS into the uh, 45 cal Glock G21. Okay. That's all I had once I started working this gun unit back in 2004, is where I'm taking is what an eye opener. Just to give you an example of how deer on the headlights uh, I felt uh, was we actually did sting undercover operations. Okay. And I think, I think on my first week there, I think it was like, my first week in the unit, uh, we decided to go to a convention center where had a gun convention. And, you know, people are walking around, you know, looking at the guns or toys. And, of course, you got the boots. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with all this. They sure. have boots where, hey, you know, come by over here. Let's do the FFL. Let's do the paperwork, the necessary legal paperwork. And lo and behold, I have one of your UCs carrying uh, what I didn't even know was called a python. It's a Smith & Wesson python. So apparently it's a big, giant, um, dirty, hairy type of gun. Okay. Firearm, right? Pistol. 
And so he's walking around trying to get someone to bite. Hey, check this out. You know, like, you know some people, eh. finally, someone decided to bite. And so that particular suspect slash arrestee, he decided that this is what he said. Himself. He said, you know what? I kind of don't want to go through all the paperwork because, you know, I kind of have a little bit of a background. So, you know what? Why don't we just go and do the deal on the side and I'll give you cash. Okay. Of course, my partner says, sure, not a problem. And so, of course, we go around the corner, go to the parking lot. Hey, LAPD, you're under arrest. <laughs> really? Yeah. Now, we have so – it was, it was like 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We we have some. I don't want to give out all our secrets. We have we have something similar that we use a, another uh, a state agency to help us with that. But um, I'm pretty familiar with, with that. It's it's definitely a, a necessary tool. That, I just got to say, side note: there there are so I have not seen ever. This is my almost twentieth year. The amount of guns on the street ever like this. I don't know if it's like that out in west in the west coast. It is. It ev- just last night in Southwest Detectives, my detectives in an eight-hour tour processed seven separate firearm arrests. That, that's a lot for one section of the city. Oh yeah, you know it. It, it all leads me to say this particular arrestee. We did a follow-up to his home. We did a search warrant. His apartment couldn't have been more than five hundred square feet, Matt, and we yeah. would cover over a hundred and eighty-seven firearms from his little apartment wow at the time in 2004 we did the biggest seizure i want to say well in the history of the lapd was 438 don't quote me on the number but i know it's more than 430 okay out of a home you can walk into when we did a search warrant you can walk into this guy's house without opening the door and just knocking over a shotgun or something wow and so the unit has evolutionized and it's gotten better to the point where you know what? Now you have um, you have an apprehension registration that you have to have. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, we get a list of um, you know felons can't carry a gun, and so we go and compliance. That's a compliance issue that we go citywide. Gotcha. Of course, anything involved with firearms uh, in terms of um, recovering a firearm. Or let's just say, for example, a patrol uh, patrol unit goes to a domestic violence radio call, and they arrest you know the husband or the wife, whoever it may be. And next thing you know, he's got three guns in the house. Well, they'll call out the gun unit Come and get they'll them. work them up. Good. Because the thing is, is you know, chances are, eh, you probably have more. Probably not there, but you probably have them somewhere else. There's somewhere. And just on a side note. Somewhere, and just on a side note, that we used to do in the gun unit is we used to go to the gun stores. Okay, right over here we have a big five sporting goods. So there was an agreement by the store owners, right, LAPD, mm-hmm. that you give us all of your all of your paperwork, not paperwork, but your logs for individuals who are buying ammunition. Okay. When you go and buy ammunition here in California, and again, uh, this is back in 2004, 2005, so I'm sure things have completely changed. Back then, in order for you to buy any type of ammunition, you have to show ID and you have to have a fingerprint, a thumb. Okay. Right? So they keep that. So they would forward all those logs to us, and we would sit there and run each individual. If 
One particular individual came back with a misdemeanor arrest. Guess what? It's against the law. You cannot have any ammo. So here's the thought. Well, if you're buying ammo, chances are you probably have a gun. You're buying it for your gun that you have. Exactly. You're buying it for something. So Right. It's a victimless crime. True. As you can tell, it's very violent because there's so many. And again, that was... 17, 18 years ago. However, we go get a search warrant from the judge, and the judge, without hesitation, said, hey, you have probable cause. You're the affiant. You know what? You're good to go. Go and get it. We go there, and there hasn't been not one of those operations where we haven't found numerous and numerous arms when we go and uh, execute the uh, search There you go. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's definitely an uphill battle for those that – those small groups of individuals that should not have guns – to get them out of their hands and hold them accountable. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. But um, eventually you transitioned into the Internal Affairs Bureau. Uh, we, so we call it the Office of Professional Responsibility in Philadelphia. Is that What do you guys call it in L.A.? Well, they call it, uh, you know. And te- yeah, the professional. I don't want to – yeah, don't say what the, 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 the cops may call it. But you transitioned – Professional – it's it's professional standards bureau. Okay. Then you have internal affairs group, aka CIA, man. So that's what just, it is. CIA. How did you? I've never worked. Now I take that back. So when I first was promoted to captain, I spent three weeks there as a captain. You can't pick your assignments. You're just assigned there. Um, how did you end up in that section of the department? You know what, Matt? Uh, I. I got to tell you, for some reason, I just have this, got this knack for misconduct. I just, I don't know. I love this shit. I'm going to tell you why. When I was in the Navy, mm-hmm. in my aircraft career, I went in as an airman apprentice. I was working on the flight deck, on the hangar deck, just chalking and chaining planes, you know, on an aircraft carrier. Eventually, I made it up to, to, the, uh, to the tower, and I started doing, you know, flight air operations. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, I wanted to go to legal. And I went, and I, I was a legal man for the last two years of my tour in the Navy. And in the Navy, man, you knew everybody's dirty. Why? Because we prepare all those non-judicial punishment cases, you know, we have called administrative cases. I basically knew everybody, the 5,000 sailors, right, mm-hmm. seamen is what we call it, <laughs> that are on the uh, aircraft here. And um, on my last Westpac tour, we actually had a team, a whole trial team, defense counsel, trial counsel, and judges come into our ship. And in our little, tiny little conference room, we actually uh, completed seven special court martials. I bring that up to say that that happened back when I was like, I was a kid. I was 25, 26 years old. You know, I, I was just like, wow. And so you fast forward, and here I am as a sergeant. Did my patrol time. Very, very fun, effective, very relevant. Somehow, some way, I made it to South here in the South here in LA, uh-huh. and I was working on a community project with parolees with a commander and a deputy chief. And just right there and then, I started. I finished my undergrad, and my best friend said, "Hey, dude, we're you know, guess what, dude, we're going to go to law school." Okay, you know, I don't know if I want. Why don't we just get my master's in criminal justice? I, I don't want to go to law school. At that time, I started getting interest into 
officer representation section. And let me explain to you what that is. Officer representation section in the Los Angeles Police Department is a unit at the at, at one point they had like 20 or 30. And I'm not going to deviate or digress to take you way back when the unit started. But when I was there, there was about eight or 10 of us. And our primary, well, let me back up. We have primary duties and secondary and responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Our primary duty was to respond all critical, is what we call categorical uses of work. Is your Leary's, L-E-R-I, which is your law enforcement related injuries, dog shootings, and your in-custody deaths. Okay. And last but not least, the most popular one, which is your OIS. So our job as defense reps, or more or less, is when we go at scene, when we get to scene, internal affairs obviously has their force investigation, investigators who are going to be investigating this entire incident. Okay. The attorney rolls out, and his sole responsibility, the attorney, is to represent shooting officer or officers. It could be one, it could be two, it just depends, right? With that being said, our job as defense reps is to provide representation and to ensure that affairs, the investigators, are not violating their rights whatsoever. And so we had to do interviews and go through the entire process, speak to nuts, frame by frame, Mm -hmm. with a fine-tooth comb, and that's how I got interest in this unit. Then came the secondary duties, which is everything and anything that has to do with internal affairs. You get an investigation from internal affairs, you call me up, we do representation, so we go anywhere from a discourtesy from a traffic stop all the way to a sexual harassment, hostile working environment, you know, type of internal uh, complaint. Uh, and we get appeals. We also have an appeal process where we actually do a hearing. It's kind of like a mini civil trial. That's how I got my interest because I started first defending cops. It's pretty okay. plain and simple. Okay. Um, here's a, we, you and I have talked about this question. The... The importance, and you said of defending cops, because I do want to make it clear that you know the police officers. It, it's a delicate subject, right? And I'm certainly not an expert on the internal affairs process. I kind of have seen it like on both ends, right? Like, so when I was younger, I've had yes. some complaints made against me. Uh, they were unfounded, and then on the management level, you know, I'm I'm sitting down with the person who's accused and having them sign the forms. Let's say either like, you know, you, you did this or you didn't do this, uh, and here's your, we call it a counseling memo, um, but I haven't had the experience of, of investigating because this, was, this wasn't something I did. But I do want to say, what's your thoughts on, you know, a fair, impartial investigation? Because the public, the person out on the street that lives in Philadelphia or L.A. deserves that. I, I do think the police officer, the employee, deserves it because yeah. there's a morale issue connected, especially yeah. if it's a training issue and they didn't necessarily mean to do something wrong. Hey, Matt, your connection's kind of slow for whatever reason. So listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna for the, for the purpose of, of, yeah, of time, go. I just want to say the importance of a good, fair, and impartial investigation and how that can affect police community relations because the investigations have to be done. I, I firmly believe if an officer is wrong. It should be dealt with appropriately. Um, but I also think that the 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 accuser, the community member, uh, deserves a a thorough invest thorough answer 
you know, what did we find? This is what we're doing. Um, just your thoughts on that. Okay. So at some point after uh, officer rep section, I got offered a job into internal affairs, not just as an investigator, but I got offered a job as an advocate, associate advocate. Basically, okay. we have an advocate section of about eight to ten sergeants for our sole specific job is to put on a border rights hearing. And these hearings, it's just like a trial, like a mini civil trial. And so the investigation that I get, the charges are pretty serious. Okay. I mean, the police pretty much says, look, these particular allegations that you're facing, that you're being alleged of this misconduct, mm-hmm. to me, they're very, very serious. So guess what? I'm going to send you, I'm going to direct you to this border rights hearing, price of three hearing officers, two command staff officers, and one uh, civilian. But now you have a choice of either three civilians or the traditional command staff officers in the civilian. And so the chief says, I'm going to go ahead and recommend removal. But you know what? We're going to wait to see what the report. And so that was my job solely for like about three plus, maybe four years. Okay. I did about, I prepared for about 40 to 50 of these cases and 30 of them I completed in that. And so I can tell you about our disciplinary system. Well, let me back up. The question you asked me is about investigations. I'm a true soul believer, quote unquote, no stone goes unturned. Problem exactly. The problem is, is that even as minor as a traffic stop where you just decided to look at me wrong or I'm completely, completely upset the way you just approached me, your attitude, your disposition, or your delivery, even something that bad, you know what? You, you got this cush job, weekends off, you know, and you're not out on the streets. You yeah. can need the family life. The flexibility is incredible. You were a homicide detective and you did great. Well, you know what? Why don't you treat this like a capital murder investigation as well? And the problem is, is that a lot of the quality, it's just not there from my experience. I'll give you an example, Matt. In the majority of the border rights that I have done, okay. when it's over, it's concluded, the command staff officers look at me and say, hey, Marlon, did anybody think about settling this? Because we just spent three or four days here listening to all this a lot of just for what for a friggin' neglected duty. I, and so to, I, I want to throw this point in there and I'll preface it with, I'm not totally up to date on all the particulars of it yet. And I, and I will, I'll, I'll get up to date, but we have a new essentially pr- part of our disciplinary process where it's just that it may not be the, the, the biggest complaint in the world. And if the officer and the individual that made the complaint want to sit down and work it out, um, that's the route that they can go. And I'm totally paraphrasing it, but I think it's it's something, it's a new idea, and I think it can work, if that makes sense. We can, uh, we can talk afterwards and talk about that, too. So let me, let me just mm-hmm. explain you what we did back in 2014. Please. Back in 2014, after doing all these border rights, uh, the commander at the time said, guess what? We're going to launch a vice police mediation program. The vice police mediation program that we launched back in 2014 it was new of its kind. I don't think police mediation has hit stream of all agencies. No. In fact, there's probably maybe two handful in the entire United States. We decided to do a vice police mediation where the criteria is it's got to be voluntary, right? If uh, 
officer, they're going to look at me and my email says, hey, would you like to be a voluntarily participate in this mediation? First thing they're going to look and say, that's fucking Marlon Frye. You know what? I'm not even going to respond, especially my South End cops. Why? Because you know this. Uh, culture, what we call organizational culture, always dictates as to what exactly you're going to do or not do. Mm-hmm. That's just the way it is. Yeah. Now, the cops that were my ex-partners, and they knew Marlon, they're like, you know what? I'm listening. What do you got to offer? Well, let me tell you what I got to offer. Look, bro, in your folder, it's what we call our team report, in your jacket, your folder, it's going to show as mediation, and it's not going to show up on your promotional uh, teams. It's not going to show up in anything besides the fact that you decided to do this. That's the carrot that we're holding. Well, what's the other incentive? Well, the other incentive is this. The other incentive is you don't have to go through a full-blown yeah. vice policing complaint investigation, which is you got to get an attorney, you got to set up a you're being asked about your rights, it's constitutional issues, so on and so forth. And even worse, and, and by the way, when I start launched this program, I was the broker. So my job, believe it or not, man, I actually thought it was going to be harder to get my pitch, to get the violator, right, the complainant, to buy into this mm. more so than the cop. I realized that, you know what? Cops that actually went for it. And so our first year, we did about 120, north of 100, and we got about a 30% completion rate, which is not bad. No, and, and, and again, I have no data to back this up. It's just from our preliminary program coming out here, I do think there's a morale component to that. It, like you mentioned, it is stressful to go through the investigation and get a lawyer and be accused and sit down and interview. If you can have another route, where you kind of hash out, hey, you might have misinterpreted me this day, and the, and the civilian says how they feel. I do think there's a morale component to that that can help, and that's just my own personal thoughts on it. Not going through the process at all. Um, I want to get to one more point though before we get all, we yes. get offline here. You have a consulting business. You and I talked about the importance of training, especially for IAB yes. investigators. Um, yes. I guess it's two parts. So, what made you, you know? Think of all right. Listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna consult. I'm gonna help train IAB investigators. And how is that going? And tell everybody about the business, please. Right. So often, often more. Well, I should say more often than not, the problem that we have with investigations, IA investigations, is that at some point in my experience, no matter who you are, mm-hmm. it becomes personal as it goes through the levels of review. It's just unfortunate. Okay. So it's not really about the process. It's not about the community. At some point, it's about your ego. Because you probably work with that guy when you were in the streets. And you know what? Uh-uh, I'm going to give him five days. Yeah. When in fact, it was just a discourtesy. You know? yeah. So part of my consulting business is, is, is this. Look, officer does a traffic stop or goes to a radio call. They make a complaint. Hey, I want to call your supervisor. Okay. I want to make a complaint because the officer was complaint discouraged or rude. And fine, we take the complaint, we do the face sheet, we'll make it look off. The officer uh, calls the union, gets a attorney to represent him in the internal affairs interview. Uh, I suppose in the agency, it's going to be the sergeant, right, who's going to do BDIO. And so they compel him, they sit down, they do the interview, you know, they ask him all these questions. Uh, he gathers all the interviews and does a paraphrase summary of the investigation, attaches an addenda with all the items that they used. And guess what? He turns it in. Now, 
He turns it into command and it goes through the levels of review. Depending on the agency, in my consulting business, I'm really targeting small agencies. When I say small, I'm not saying like eight. Small meaning not 9,800 on the LAPD. Okay. Anything small. And the reason why I say that is because of this. This is where the problem lies. And this is why I think it's so important uh, for me, you know, to provide this type of service. It's because once you turn it in, at some point, everybody's going to try to adjudicate it, and it's going to end up with the chief's success. He or she is going to have to make a decision. As you know, one, it's going to be either sustained, and if it is sustained, okay, what kind of penalty do we recommend? Exactly. Right? What's fair, right? Or if it's unfounded, it's unfounded, call it a day, have a nice day, you get served, you get skelly, and you call it a day. But here's the problem. Why don't you give Sergeant Mirage in Marlin that file, and this is what you're going to get. You're going to get an independent, full analysis and examination of this entire investigation. It's going to be fair. It's going to be impartial. And guess what? There's going to be no nepotism, no favoritism, because that's where the problem lies internally. Here's the deal. You got that one cop that's in the streets that does that ancillary duty heat swap. And everybody loves him. Right? Everybody likes him. Sergeant likes him. Lieutenant likes him. And guess what? He's dropping F-bombs, and he's going off on this radio call and on this traffic stop. Okay? Now, the chief is thinking, dude, that's my community. You can't be talking to people like that in my community. Yeah. So the chief's probably hot on it, but here's the problem. The sergeant and the lieutenant are like, you know what? Hey, you know what? He's a good dude. You know what? He's solid. Hey, you know what? Let's just give him day. a counseling chest yeah. and just write something up and call, call it a day. Meanwhile, in the chief's mind, of course, he can't say anything. He's thinking, fuck that. You know what? I want to jam this dude up. It was a suspension, but of course, the chief is handcuffed in the corner because he doesn't want to go against his command staff. That's one side of the fence of the example. The other one is even worse. You got that B cop, right? That's what we call batch heavy, rude, disrespectful, always going off, getting all heavy and talking shit and doing this and that when he's on the streets, on traffic stops and radio calls and consensual encounters, whatever it may be. And you know what? They don't like him. Nobody likes him. And staff doesn't like him knowing. So guess what? He does a traffic stop for a discourtesy. And guess what? He's getting hammered. I, this is the one. I want to fire this dude now and get rid of him. But my point is, is that my consulting service comes from, look, I have no stake in the fight. No dog in the fight whatsoever. But what you're going to get from me, because I have reviewed hundreds and hundreds of these investigations. I have fired and prosecuted cops. And I've defended cops. I've been on both sides. And for me... This is what you're going to get. So that's what we're kind of offering. I'm hoping to, uh, you know, to get some business and uh, and do something good for once. I think, and, and it's time. No, it's time. listen, I, I agree. I I think that um, this is something that I I think that you're definitely onto something. It's needed in the profession. Uh, I'm glad that we got the opportunity to sit down. I hope we get to do it again because I have a million other questions. Um, but listen, Marlon. I appreciate honestly number one I appreciate your service to the country in the Navy um, I appreciate your service to LA I tell my wife all the time we have to make our way out there and if you ever have the opportunity to come to Philly we'd love to uh, catch up with you but um, you're set brother take me to an Eagles game oh man watch. You, listen for, for the audience he has a, Cali- a hat with a, the California uh, state on it we can't bring him to an Eagles game with that but uh, we, we'll get you an Eagles jersey we'll hook you up <laughs> we'll hook that up man and you know what Matt? thank you so much I really feel that your audience needs to be aware of you know 
what this is really all about. And if anything, if we can touch just one person and let them know, hey, you know what, I kind of understand it a little bit now. No, absolutely. <laughs> and and, and I do want to say, I want to throw this in there. I'm going to be a little, little selfish to the Philadelphia Police Department. The investigators at our internal affairs, they are dedicated. They are as are many throughout the country. You know, they want to do the right thing, and many of them do. It's time-consuming. It, you don't get a thanks for it at all, I'm sure, as you know. And uh, But it's a necessary function of the department. So thank you for being on. Thank you for being a part of this. Um, and I hope we stay in touch. Let's, uh, for sure, brother. All Give right. me a call. We'll talk some more, and uh, we'll do this again when we have more time. Absolutely.